Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media, where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. Christine Soto de Berry is the founder and executive director of the Prosecutors Alliance, an organization that supports and amplifies the voices of California prosecutors committed to reforming our criminal justice system through smart, sage, modern solutions that advance not just public safety, but community well-being. Christine spent nine years with the San Francisco DA's office, a decade as the chief of staff to San Francisco district attorneys, George Gastone and Chesa Boudin, as well as serving as San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom's deputy chief of staff. In our attempt at True 30 to understand the many issues related to our criminal justice system here in San Francisco, we were thrilled to have Christine join us today and share her vision of what proper criminal justice reform looks like. I hope you learn as much as I did from today's episode. Well, there's our legal warning counselor. So thank you so much for uh, joining me on True 30 this morning. And uh, it was fortunate for me. I went out to a conference called The Summit in Palm Desert a couple of weeks ago. And I was fortunate enough to meet with you through a friend of ours named Scott Witt. And you were among many of the folks out there in the desert that have uh, goals of trying to help the world a bit. And uh, so that specific to you is in the area of criminal justice reform. And after attending your talk about how you got into criminal justice reform, I was more than eager to get your take on the future of criminal justice for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I live and work in San Francisco, <laughs> so I see many of the issues you're up against. And secondly, your vast experience in all things criminal justice, starting with your nine years at the San Francisco District Attorney's Office, your former role of Chief of Staff for Chesa Boudin in 2020, Chief of Staff for George Gascon in Los Angeles from 2011 to 2019, the Chief of Staff for Mayor Newsom from 2009 to 2011, and your new role as the founder of the Prosecutors Alliance an organization you started in 2020 to help reform what most of us of reason can agree needs to be reformed. And as I mentioned to you briefly at the conference, I have some personal experiences with this um, based on my little brother's addiction and revolving door in and out of jails and re rehab centers, much of which I think um, could have been handled differently. And I think there was a lot of cruelty and counterproductive behavior that took place with that. So I want to state that for my bias in case anyone understands where I sit with that. Um, and so, you know, needless to say, you are one of the most decorated people that I've ever seen in this area. And that's why I'm so happy to have you on the show today, specifically to talk about, I think, what not only needs to happen here in San Francisco, but big cities across the United States. So thanks again, Christine, for joining me. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Excited for the conversation. <laughs> so, you know, why don't we just start in with your newest passion, because it's a very interesting organization. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Prosecutors Alliance, why you started it? Uh, and maybe, you know, you don't maybe you don't have five goals, but what are your what are your goals, uh, you know, over the next decade specifically? Yeah, that's a it's a great place to start. I'm on a new adventure for the yes, past few years here. 
I'm a bit of an entrepreneur, which is new after coming out of a career in government. Uh, and I started this work because I saw so many areas um, for just big opportunities to shift the conversation we were having around criminal justice. I had the benefit, as you were saying at the beginning here, of being both a prosecutor and a public defender. I've also been a victim and I've been accused of crime. And like most of us, I've seen the issue from a lot of different angles, but that can be pretty rare in the criminal justice system, unfortunately. Um, and, and what that personal and professional experience allowed me to understand is that most of us want a better system. All of us want it to work, right? I think we can all agree. We, yeah. want, we apply an intervention, we're hopeful it will work or we wouldn't be applying it. Um, and the question in this country for so long has been what will work? And um, I felt there was a real opportunity after working with both George and Chesa to have a bigger conversation in our community of prosecutors about what could be better and, and to join that conversation rather than resisting it out of hand or refusing to participate in a dialogue and be connected with people with a different point of view. What would happen if we were in the dialogue about transforming the system of justice into one that actually delivered on what we're all hopeful it will do, what we pour our hearts and souls into every day, hoping for a good outcome, but often don't get. And so we formed this group to try and create a space and community for prosecutors, victim advocates, people that feel a connection to that part of the work to be in the solution game instead of the status quo game. And um, it has been really revelatory for me and exciting to see how many prosecutors are hungry for that conversation, who want to come to the convert to the table, put up what they think is problematic, hasn't really met the goals that they had, and work in partnership to find better solutions to our problems. Um, and so that's what we're building. We work on a range of things. We work on legislative proposals. We work on policy. We provide trainings, exposure to research and data. And one of our more recent things, um, just building experiential trainings, opportunities for dialogue to put, kind of create the bridges that I've experienced in my own life of being able to talk to people in, from many different positions in this work has I think created a real depth in my understanding. And so trying to offer that same opportunity to others. Okay. And it says here under your, your uh, logo there, California, do you have it? Is it just in the state of California or is this uh, moving onward and upward to other states in the, in the United States? So I think we will be moving to some other states. We did start in California. It's where my experience has been um, entirely on criminal justice issues and I wanted to work at home, uh, but other people are reaching out to us. Prosecutors around the country are saying, I'm interested. My office would love some trainings, or is there an opportunity for us to join you on visits? And so um, we're in, in conversations now with a couple other states about what would be helpful to them to be part of doing this similar work. So I expect in the next year or two, we'll be in a few other places. That's great. So, you know, um, a phrase that's bantied about quite often specific to criminal justice reform is reformative justice. Is that part of what you guys are lobbying for? Or how does that kind of play into what you guys are doing? Yeah, so, I, you know, I think there are a lot of um, labels, some that are specific to approaches, um, some that are specific to a kind of program. We have been less dogmatic about that um, okay. and more we've taken kind of a broader approach, which this would fall under, of talking about healing as the goal of our approach. 
And I think for a long time, the orientation has been around punishment and consequences for bad behavior, which we understand. Um, we all have that instinct in us. The, the challenge with that and the limitation of that is it doesn't change behavior. And so what we're looking for is what will interrupt the individual's either self-destructive or outwardly destructive behavior effectively, right? Not in the way that we feel it should, but in the way that will actually change behavior. And so the thing we have learned from the work we've all done and the research that we see is that healing really is the place that that comes from. And so having a system that's more focused on both individual healing, but having systems in place that help individuals achieve that healing is critical to finding a new pathway. And restorative justice is very much grounded in that um, yeah. that belief. What's beautiful about restorative justice, and though it isn't broadly yet accepted, to me is a real opportunity for prosecutors is that the, the premise of restorative justice is that we center the victim mm -hmm. and we center what harm has happened to the victim and all of the solutions come from that place. That is very consistent with a prosecutor's point of view on the work is thinking about somebody was harmed here in a way they shouldn't have been. And I want to respond in their defense. Uh, and so restorative justice can be a really beautiful on-ramp for people to that conversation the 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 challenge there is understanding that a lot of what we do in we do in the name of a victim often is not all that empowering or healing or helpful to them and that can be a really hard uh reality to understand particularly when you have you know been very diligent about your work and and tried so hard but with limited tools to to achieve that result but the beautiful thing about restorative justice and really, you know, for folks listening, what you do is you, a survivor of a crime will tell you, here's how I was hurt and here's what will help me. Here's what can repair that harm. Put me as close to I was before that harm as possible. And they get to drive a conversation with the person that harmed them and they can set the conditions for how that happens um, all the way from like who's in the room, who speaks first, how long they can speak. Um, to the most important part about what that person should do to make amends. Um, so I can give you an example of a like a less serious case I had in San Francisco. We did this where we wouldn't have the victims always come in, but they could write a letter. Um, so we had a graffiti case and the store owner, you know, called the police. The police came. We offered an opportunity for a restorative solution to that. And so the store owner said, my wall has been graffitied. Every other day for the last six months, it costs me X hundred dollars to paint it every single time. It discourages customers and right, listed out all of the ways this was very damaging to him and his livelihood. And the panel of neighborhood uh, adjudicators that we had trained then shared that letter with the person that was arrested. He said, yes, I did do that. I'm an artist and I feel like this is my neighborhood. I grew up here and it's my way of, of marking where I live and sharing my contributions. I hadn't thought about what it was doing to his business or the cost involved in that. And what the store owner asked for was an apology and then assistance with painting the wall. And what the adjudicators asked for was that the individual also provide some volunteer hours at a uh, mural project 
in the city. And so he was a, they wanted to provide him a positive outlet for what he thought he was contributing. There is a place for that. Let's find the right vehicle and manner for you to do that. So that's the kinds of things you can achieve with restorative justice that really in our more traditional approach, you don't get to, right? In our approach, it's like we put you on probation, we have you do community service at something disconnected from what brought you there. Um, So a lot less relevance and substance on both sides of that uh, when we go through the courtroom. Okay, so help me with this, because I didn't even think this was a possibility. If, and that that's a, to your point, it's a it's a pretty benign case, right? It's right. graffiti. It's no big deal. But let's say that you were mugged or beat up, you know, and then robbed, as an example. Yeah. Would you actually take the victim and the assailant and put them in the same room? And, and if they wish, they, if they wanted to do this, and then sit down and talk and say, "Here's what happened to me. Here's yeah. how I feel. Like you have violated me. I still have. I'm traumatized. I have nightmares." Is is that does that take place in a central location or is it over Zoom or is to your point, could they just share it in a letter? Just kind of help help me and the listeners understand what that means, because this is very new to me. Yeah, it could look any of those ways. Um, we do have a program or did have a program like that in San Francisco for juvenile cases. And it was things as serious as robbery or assaults. Um, it was only allowed where the victim agreed that they were comfortable with that outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, That was a really important part of it, as we talked about the premise of restorative justice. And there's the great thing about it is there's a lot of work that happens before that conversation. So somebody is working with the victim, him by him or herself, and somebody's working with the person who caused harm by him or herself to get everybody ready to have a productive dialogue. So it's not as if just like, here you are, two people try and work it out, right? There's a lot of facilitation that happens before the dialogue. Um, But we have done that with great success uh, on juvenile cases. So we had a randomized control trial for this program in San Francisco. So some people were given the option of a restorative response to what they did, and some people were sent through a traditional court process. And we studied it for several years. And what we found was about a 40% reduction in reoffending rates by the young people that were given the restorative intervention versus going through court. Um, It makes perfect sense to me why that is, because it is much more, it is much realer to stand in front of the person you hurt and hear them say, just as you said, I'm having nightmares. I I can't sleep at night. I've triple locked my door. I still don't feel safe. And it's because you ran up behind me and hit me on the head. And I don't, I want to understand why you did that. Why did you choose me? What was it about that day or what was happening? And there's an opportunity to hear directly from the person that hurt them mm-hmm. what that was. They could say something like, oh, I, I was targeting you. I thought about, you know, you seem like somebody I could overpower or right. you just happened to be the person that walked by me at the moment that I realized I needed money to do whatever X, Y, Z. But getting that um, unfiltered, unmediated dialogue is incredibly transformational for both people in the conversation. Obviously, to, you know, from my point of view, the great benefit of we don't have another victim because we have 40% less likelihood of that happening. That's a huge victory for all of us. But another great thing is victims are more satisfied with this approach. 
Because the truth of what we do in a courtroom is we talk for the victim too. <laughs> yeah. We tell the victim, sit down in the in the audience, we're going to represent you. And then we do all of the talking and they come to court if they choose, but they don't have a role in what happens. They don't get to design the process of what is said and what they hear and how the judge decides to respond. It's very out of their hands. And so the benefit of a restorative process is a victim has a lot more control over what that looks like and has agency and gets an, an experience of empowerment around a thing that was very disempowering. That's great. In addition to that, and I, I haven't dug too deeply into this, but there's a University of San Francisco professor, I think Laura Bazelon, mm-hmm. who talked specifically about, and it's a statistic that was startling for me, is that 90% of victims, when asked to sit down and do this, choose the restorative justice program. Yes. And that really surprised me because yeah. I I would think that most people, specifically victims, would like punitive justice, you know, because they're angry and they are hurt and they are suffering from right. either physical or mental trauma. And so that that's a number. Is that a correct number? I didn't do a lot of homework on it. That was just one that I pulled on that. Is is that I mean, yes. it doesn't have to be the 90 percent, but it's obviously a, a majority of cases are asking for this, right. which is also a surprise for me. Well, when we set up this juvenile program, we said we had the victim has to agree. And we all agreed when we were designing that, that it was okay if they said no, that was going to be the end of the conversation, fully expecting we would hear a good number of no's. Yeah. We had one ever. It was shocking to us. And, and, um, but the data does bear that out. As you reference, when we look at this around the country, it is, now, so I don't want to speak for all victims because they have a broad range of experiences like any category of people do. But the most common thing you hear from victims is, I don't want it to happen to me again, and I don't want it to happen to anyone else. Mm-hmm. That's what they're asking us for, right? And so when we say to them, well, the way we can do that for you is jail or prison, they're like, okay, then let's use jail or prison. But if we come to them and say, we have jail or prison, it fails 70% of the time. Or we have this approach where you can be in dialogue with the person who harmed you and it succeeds 60 to 70% of the time. There's a different evaluation and opportunity for them in that moment, right? And so um, that isn't the dialogue that happens, but that is what people understand in their own minds, right? We don't kind of push them down a certain way. We say, here's what it would look like to do this. Are you interested? Yes or no. We don't talk about success rates. But I think intuitively people understand we're much more likely to reach a person if we can have a real open conversation with them, right? Whoever it is for whatever it is. Um, And so it is a beautiful process and it can be used in lots of different ways. It can be used after jail and prison. It can be used during jail and prison. It can be used instead of jail or prison. Uh, It is an approach more so than it is the, that it has to be the only intervention. And and that creates a lot of freedom too, right? If we have a case of a homicide or a very serious sexual assault, we may not feel like that conversation is adequate, or we may. We have had victims, you know, say that that would be their preference. Um, The system tends to step in and act anyways, in spite of that victim's wish, but it is an interesting place for us to all be working. Yes. And so one thing that struck me immediately with the story is that I didn't think, and this is on a, on a, on a narrative out there today, specifically in yeah. San Francisco, is that the police are not arresting people for misdemeanors at the same level they once did. So are people being arrested for graffiti actually booked and put into jail or is it just fined and then they deal with this? That's 
my first question. Yeah. Um, and and then, yeah, once you answer that one first, then I'll dive into something else. Because that so, is part of what's going on out here in the narrative is that we yeah. don't punish criminals anymore. Right. So arrest rates are down. They're down in San Francisco. They're down around the country. They okay. have been on a downward trajectory for years. Um, we can speculate about what that is. Can be national trends, can be local trends. There's a lot of things um, I won't you know, try to be the only person <laughs> that answers that. <laughs> but what we can say unequivocally is arrest rates are down. Now, that does not mean there nobody's getting arrested. It means we're arresting a lot fewer people. In San Francisco, the clearance rate, which is the rate at which you say this is the, the crime that happened, this is the person we associated with, therefore we can clear that case. The clearance rate is single digits. It's under 10%. It may be about 8% now. It's been as low as 6%. So there's certainly an issue there that requires some more evaluation. But people do get arrested for misdemeanor conduct. Generally, they're given a ticket, a citation that says okay. you're accused of graffitiing this wall. You need to come to court on this date in two Got months. It. Okay. So it's not that they're, it's rare that they're going to jail for that in the moment, uh, unless there's other, they have other crimes or they have other issues going on. Great. So that leads me to the next question, which is progressive prosecutors, right? You see that a lot in literature. Mm -hmm specific to this. And then depending on what you read, it, it it kind of, the movement began in 2014. Is that correct? Kind of where you see, and, and the, the people that listed in the articles are people that you've worked for, George Gaston, uh, Chesa Boudin, Larry Krasner in Philly, um, Alvin Bragg in Manhattan, uh, Eric Gonzalez in Brooklyn. All of these DAs are, and I don't want to speak, you know a lot more about this than I, are they kind of all working around the same ideology, specifically restorative justice, bringing the victims in at, at the central point and saying, hey, we want you to help us with your specific crime. And we think then we can move forward uh, based on what you talked about with recidivism of 40% less. These are all good things. Right. Is that is that a collective within the progressive prosecutor name or, you know, what what is going on with that group of, of men and women that I, I just mentioned? Because yeah, that is, yeah. they're all mentioned in the same literature that I read everywhere. Right, right. I, there's not one unifying ideology. It'd be like saying, oh, all Democrats think X, Y, Z, right? Maybe <laughs> some yeah. core or all Republicans, okay. you know. Yeah, good point. Right. So it's a large enough group that there's not unanimity of viewpoint. But I would say that there's a, a dissatisfaction with the failures of our approach and a commitment to try and find better solutions. I think they all hold that belief. How they think we get there varies by their own experience, varies by their jurisdiction that they're in, varies by things they have tried and seen work or not work. Um, so you see a lot of variation once you, you dive down into those layers. But what I think is commendable and a thing that I hope we encourage more of as voters and residents is that we want leaders who are dissatisfied with failure, right? Yeah. We don't want leaders who say failing 70% of the time is good enough for me and it should be for you. So suck it up, right? Like that is dissatisfying for anybody. If you don't have your hands on the steering wheel, you're hoping the person who does cares deeply about that. And unfortunately in criminal justice, we have taken this zero risk approach that like any innovation, any iteration, any exploration is reckless. And I would argue the reverse is true. 
to keep doing what we're doing is really reckless. We're creating more victims. We're creating opportunities for harm that perhaps we could solve if we were willing to give ourselves enough space to try not harebrained ideas, but like researched and thought through ideas about what could be different ideas that work in other countries, right? We have enough information available to us that we can be trying tested models. Um, so I would say that's what unifies the group. Um, the label progressive prosecutor has been attached at some point to the process. George was appointed district attorney and then ran starting in 2011. Um, so when it started or who's in it, you know, it, everybody may have a different point of view on that. But I do think that the overarching belief is we can do better than what we're doing. And you mentioned a 70% failure rate. That's the recidivism rate of offenders after a 10-year period, correct? I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to, you know more than I do, but is that what you were referencing? It's a national number for failure, for re-arrest yeah. uh, after incarceration. Okay. And so another thing that, you know, during our email exchange, you you mentioned that you were visiting prisons. And so that's another thing I wanted to, to bring up. There's yeah. a couple of things there. Why do you visit mm -hmm. prisons? What do you learn from that? And do you think specifically, because that is something that I have a sore spot for with my little brother visiting him in jails and prisons is it's terrible and it's it's not a good place. It's it. The people come out different. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's more traumatizing to go to prison than almost anything else. It was one of the worst things that ever happened to my little brother. Mm. So help me a little bit about, you know, why do you go to prisons? Because I, I don't know a lot of prosecutors that have done that. And yeah. what what are you gleaning from these experiences? And, and what is then something, how is that affecting what you want to do moving forward? Right. So imagine um, never seeing your doctor. Uh, or your doctor never having seen the effects of any medication that she prescribes. It is sort of how we operate in this system. So prosecutors are not required to visit a jail or a prison, but they prescribe that intervention all the time. Okay. Um, I think that that, no matter what you glean from it, I think one should get as close as they can to the work that they're doing. And one should see, okay, I, I believe that you are a certain level of dangerousness that requires being removed from the community and put in this place. Then we should go see that place. And we should understand what it means to send someone for one day, one year, an entire life to that place. Yep. Um, in addition to just seeing the physical location of what those interventions look like, the way our criminal justice system is set up is that a prosecutor is not allowed to talk to the accused person unless their attorney agrees to that. So there's essentially no dialogue that happens between the prosecutor and the defendant, right? There's a there's an ethical wall that's drawn there. And as a result, people are, you know, appropriately quite cautious of not crossing that. Sure. Which we understand why that is, but the the bad part of that is then they never have any direct interaction with anybody that they're prosecuting, and they never have any feedback about what happened after they were sentenced. And so, for all of these reasons, we're taking prosecutors into prisons, and we're putting them. We, you know, yes, they get a tour. Here's what the yard looks like. Here's what a dorm room looks like. Here's what a cell looks like. But the majority of that time is spent sitting in dialogue with people that are incarcerated in that place about their lives. What was your life like before you were incarcerated? 
What has incarceration been like? Where are you now in your thinking? It is an incredible opportunity and a privilege for me to sit in those conversations because they they aren't ha- they aren't happening. I think this might be the first effort at it. Uh, I was just in one on Tuesday, uh, a women's prison in Southern California, and um, to a person, both the prosecutors and the women that were incarcerated, they were like, "I've never been in a conversation like this. I've never had the opportunity to see or be seen by this category of people." And it's transforming how I think about it. For the people, the women that are incarcerated, they were like, I just assume you hate us all and that you're, you know, just mad and going to punish us as much as you can. And to hear you say that you're worried about us or you're worried about the community is something I could have never imagined. And then for the prosecutors to sit in a conversation and hear about the difficulties in the lives of these women before they committed a crime. And then to hear their remorse um, and that they speak the names of their victims and hold them in great regard and and great um, reverence for what they have done to another human being is really impactful for the prosecutors because they don't otherwise get to see that. They see just that moment in court, which is not long after the crime. They're not interacting at all. The Defense lawyer has told their client, don't look at anybody, don't make eye contact because it will be taken as you're trying to threaten people or Mm -hmm. do something. And so they mostly stare straight ahead. They also don't talk. The victim doesn't talk. And everybody's drawing conclusions about everybody that when they get in that circle, they realize most of them are false. (laughs) Wow. Okay. so you mentioned that it's rare. This is new then. This is not something that has been adopted, not only here in San Francisco, it just hasn't. So prosecutors historically have rarely, if ever, met with anyone in the prison system at this level. And is is the goal of it to humanize the experience for everyone? Is that a big piece of it? A huge part of it. I was saying at the beginning of this, I've done defense work. And so I had clients and I spoke to them and I understood how my conversation was with them one on one versus Mm -hmm. how we represented that situation in court. There was a lot of space in there. (laughs) And many of my clients would say, I feel terrible. I did that thing. I don't know, like, what can we do? And I'd say, well, we're not going to say that right now because that will not (laughs) help you, (laughs) right? And and so that is hidden from view for appropriate reasons because we're trying to navigate a legal scenario, but not always the best pathway to figuring out what happened and how severe of an intervention we need. If somebody already has insight that what they did was not okay and they feel badly about it, our intervention's likely going to look different than someone who's sitting there saying like, wasn't me and I don't know why you're, everyone's staring at me that way, Didn't you know, it's her fault or, mm-hmm. right? That's a very different moment in a person's life. But most of that is not what we discuss. Uh, and so these op- these visits give an opportunity for everybody to just see the human being on the other side of it and to realize we all do good and bad things at varying degrees in our lives. Um, and most of us feel deep remorse when we do something wrong. True. And do you have just personally, it's, again, my own personal bias kind of fits in here because I think that with my own little brother and his issues, if someone would have taken this time to meet with him and to take this approach, I think it would have been very helpful, not only to his recidivism, but to his heart. Right. And 
so all of that said, where where's the limit for you as a prosecutor, historically and otherwise? Because obviously there are people that are just not going to be reformed, right? right? And they continue. So if you see, you know, there's some crime statistics that a lot of the people in jail have six, seven, eight, nine different offenses before they are put in jail or prison for a prolonged period, and they deserve to be there, right? That's part of that narrative. Where do you sit as someone who has, you know, decades of experience in this? Is there, are there people that you just, you know, we can't help this person. We, we just can't. It, they need to be put behind bars because they're just going to continue to hurt other people. I mean, does that, does that ever happen to you? Do you get to the point where you're like, I've had it with this person or this, the, yeah, anyone who, well, you know, yeah, I, I think about it a little differently, but I understand what, what's driving that question. I would say there's a very small percentage, single digit percentage of people who are like psychologically uninterested in uh, reforming their behavior. That's a very rare person. That is an exceptionally rare person. There are a lot of people a lot of people, most, who are so hurt, they're having trouble getting through what they do versus what has happened to them versus making impulsive decisions. There's most people that we're dealing with are living in that space. They're not making good choices. They're hurting themselves. They're hurting other people. And we have to figure out how to intervene in that cycle. That can look a lot of different ways. That can look like we just need to get your attention. You haven't been arrested. We got your attention. You getting arrested didn't get your attention. Okay. Right. And so we have to, we have to be able to iterate there. Um, and we have to be responsive to the individual in front of us and their circumstances instead of this crime warrants this response because there are a whole range of people committing that kind of crime and they require different levels of response. The group that we were just sitting down with in this prison are all serving life sentences. Every single one of the women. Wow. I would have, if you asked me to evaluate their cases on what I know there, you know, I don't have their, their files, but the vast majority could be released. If you look at the evaluations that the prison system in California does, the staff that run the prisons, they will tell you most people that are in the facilities are rated as a low risk to reoffend. So and I think yet they're there are, forever. And they're there for the rest of their lives. Oof. Well, see, I mean, that's that seems problematic on a couple of fronts, one of which is it's very expensive. Yes. And the other, I think it was Alvin Bragg that talked about a 20-year maximum in New York right. City. And yep. for that, is it that for that reason? Because I think that, you know, there is a, if, and let me just say this, the rehabilitation piece of the restorative justice piece sounds wonderful. And I think that because of the 70% 70 recidivism rate, it makes sense to think that way. You talked about the Prosecutors Alliance specific to legislative reform and macro initiatives. How best do you see your role in helping to clean up prisons? Because mm -hmm. I, I, I've never read anything good about prisons. I <laughs> just haven't. <laughs> just, it's just so bad once you get in there. And even jails, you know, Rikers Island obviously had just numerous, you know, yeah. horrible, horrible after horrible story. But what are you guys doing on that front? What can be, even for us lay people, what, what is something that can be a demonstrable uh, improvement specific to prisons that can be done relatively soon, you know, yeah. legislatively? Yeah. So here's, this is a great question. So Norway, 
used to have prisons very much like U.S. prisons. And they had a recidivism rate very much like the U.S. recidivism rate, above 70%. And they spent about two decades transforming their system. They had a very, as we know prisons now, as you see on TV, right? There's barbed wire fences and steel gates and guns and concrete and the whole thing. And they were dissatisfied with the failure rate of that system and started trying to figure out how could they do it differently. They still have prisons, but they don't look anything like a U.S. prison. The men or women that are there, it's more like a halfway house, what we would understand as a halfway house, where it's like you're there at night, you sleep there, but during the day you're out working, you're earning a living, you may start working at the prison, but then earn up the trust to be out in the community with a, a day job, you come back. Part of your earnings are set to pay for your housing in the prison, And part of your earnings are set aside so that you have a savings account when you get released and are able to to use that to get yourself off on the right foot. They have reduced their recidivism rate through that and the amount of programming they do and all of these efforts they've made toward changing their prison system. Their recidivism right now is 20%, under 20%. And that's Arnie Nielsen, isn't it? Isn't that the governor of of the the prison governor of Norway? I think I read about this guy and I was like, wow, that's impressive. And I think, oh no, I, I didn't read about him. I, I watched him on a TED talk mm. and he talked specifically about that and said that, and you know, it's funny because in, in many other debates that I've had with folks specific to, you know, Scandinavian countries, it's like, well, it's homogenized and they're all the same. And it's, you know, we have this heterodox, massive, you know, 330 million people. It's kind of hard to compare, but I think specifically on prisons, I think there's, to your earlier point, there's a lot we can learn from other countries to how they're treating people more humanely and and education. And I think the education is big. And I, these numbers all kind of get gelled together in my little brain because I, I do too much homework before I come and talk to people like yourself. But the idea there is that once you actually attain an education, specifically a college degree, the recidivism rates are even lower yes. in the, the single digits. Because yeah. once you've actually gone out, got an education and figured yourself out, and in this TED talk with Arnie Nielsen uh, of Norway, he talks specifically about that as well. They have, um, you know, mo- automotive automotive programs, and they have people where you're trained into going doing jobs when you get done, and that way you can go. Once you get out of prison, it's yeah. not like you're just stuck, and or you've been abused yeah. at a physical and mental level, emotional level that you just can't recover from. So as soon as you get back out, yeah, you fall right back with your old crew, or you fall right back into crime because. It's really the only thing that you understand. And yeah. violence is really the only, not only do you understand violence, you understand it better. Because yes. that was the one thing I knew from, you know, Stevie going in and out of jail is that he always came back, sometimes beat up. Uh, and it was, you know, it's tough. It's tough for them. They they get worse <laughs> when they go in. And that that obviously is a big piece of the restorative, or actually just the reform in general is that it has, that has to change. Yeah. You almost couldn't devise a worse solution. Yeah. Right. To say, like, we don't want you to be violent and impulsive. So what we're going to do is remove you from the positive things in your life, your mother, your brother, your best friend from childhood. We're going to cut you off from all of that. We're going to put you in a place where you have limited movement with a whole group of other people who have the exact same problem as you. And we're not going to provide any guidance on how to do things differently. We're going to lock you into a room or a cage and then at a point, we're going to open the door and say, go back and do better. Right. And now you cannot seek employment at almost any employable and uh, any employment. You can't get housing. 
Right. If you look at the number of people that are unhoused in California with criminal convictions, it's astounding. We are exacerbating the problem. We're not solving it with this solution. And and to to do that at a time on this planet when we've seen another country tackle that very same issue with success is infuriating to me. <laughs> I bet. And so what do you... We can do better. We There is an example of how to do better. What they say in Norway is like, the punishment is the loss of your freedom, not the loss of your humanity. Hmm. Yeah, I like that. And so that said, do you think it's realistic to make those kind of changes? I mean, what are you guys doing on that front? And what does that look like specific to prisons or even jails for that matter? So we worked on a bill um, last year, unfortunately did not pass, but to end solitary confinement, right? This idea of using, I mean, that is literally like a dungeon from the 1600s, right? Like you will see no sunlight, you will talk to no people. We do not need to do that to reform people's behavior. No, um, I mean, that, so, yeah, even as a lay person, that it actually breaks people mentally. Yes. Right. But we use it in the state still, and there are no limits on it. It is determined by prison staff. There is no hearing or judge or anybody else that weighs in on the need for that, the length of that, the appropriateness of it. Wow. Uh, so, my good friend and someone you met at, at Summit already spent eight years in solitary confinement. And that is not an uncommon experience in the state of California and in the United States of America. Uh, and that is that is excessive. It is cruel. We should not be doing that to people, no matter what they did, no matter how horrible what they did was. Returning that cruelty does not solve the problem. Right, right. Uh, no, he's obviously one of the fringe cases that survived such torture and that is torture right that's just psychological torture torture. that's not and doesn't that shouldn't that crawl under you know fall under cruel and unusual punishment i mean there's certain things that you know you think well that doesn't make any sense and Yeah. yeah so outside of that you know where do you with the legislative piece, mm-hmm. because we're having this discussion, we have to discuss <laughs> the defund the police movement mm-hmm. and understanding what are your thoughts? I mean, as an old ad guy, I came from the media world. Yeah. The phrase always bothered me because it wasn't conducive or it wasn't appropriate to what the goal was. Mm-hmm. Right. And I did a lot of reporting on defund the police. I interviewed progressive activists at the DNC. I interviewed beat cops, leadership mm-hmm. uh, here at SFPD and a chief of police at Santa Rosa Police mm-hmm. Department named uh, John Cregan, who turns out to be just a mensch. And they're doing a lot of really cool things that I can get into in a sec. But what are your thoughts on defund the police specific to your initiatives? And what is, is it more of a, obviously the, <laughs> the slogan wasn't accurate, but the idea behind it as I dug into it was that the goal was less punitive, mm-hmm and more mental health services and removing the police from a lot of those, you know, calls to service, if you will. So what what are you guys doing, if anything, on that front? Or what are your, what's your purview as an expert in this area? Because I'm very curious to know how you see that. Yeah. So, I, you know, what I would love the slogan to be is fund peace. Right. Let's fund the things that will prevent harm from happening in the first place. That is our best spent dollar by far. 
on any on any scale. Agreed. Um, and I think what people in, in, are saying is along these lines that, and it is true, we use so many of our dollars in the reactive part of this work, police, prosecutors, prisons. It starves the budgets of local government to be able to invest in the preventative part of the conversation. And so people are saying like, why does my brother have to go to jail to get mental health services? That's a very good question. Right. <laughs> that, that is a way more expensive way to give mental health services and less effective. Um, so I think that that is the question that we can all rally around, right? You don't have to come to it saying there should be no police. You can come to it saying, how do we make sure that the money is available at the beginning of a person's life and their struggles and not at the end to let them know we disapprove? But like, how, what does it look like to support them? This literally happened in my conversation this week at the prison. One of the prosecutors came out and she said, what is so heartbreaking to me is that the women that are there only got help once they got there. Mm-hmm. And that there wasn't, and, you know, and they've had to, the, many of them have been 20, 30, 40 years in that prison before they got the opportunity to do the work that they're doing now. Um but had they gotten the help earlier when they were being victimized by members of their own family or, you know, in dangerous situations, maybe we would have avoided them being in prison. We certainly would have avoided somebody losing their life. So I think that that's, that's the work we're most interested in. We are trying very hard to move those dollars. Uh, we're trying to move those dollars towards victim services and to broaden our understanding of what a victim is, because most people are in the criminal justice system were first hurt by somebody else. And if we can provide that help to everybody in the moment when they're hurt, we have a much better chance of healing them and them not hurting other people. So that I think is a, the way the, we're looking at that question is, how is it that we can move those dollars to their highest and best use? Nobody wants to pay more taxes, Nobody wants oh oh triple my taxes so we can have mental health services. That's hard, right? That's a right. it's real times like that is real dollars coming out of somebody's paycheck. And so I think it's incumbent on all of us to figure out how do we use the limited dollars we have to their highest and best use. To me, it's on prevention. It's on supporting people to have fulfilling, hope-filled lives before they ever walk down a path of us having to intervene more harshly. Sure. Uh, other places do it. We can do it. Yeah, because I, the reason I mentioned that is that the the remedy that is taking place, you've heard of cahoots, obviously, up in, in the, uh, the Northwest. And the idea there is that mental health services are a big piece of the calls into dispatch every month. And yeah. so what Captain Cregan, or actually Chief of Police Cregan, shared with me is their goal with the in-response units is to have them take up to 25% of the calls into dispatch at some time during the future. So let's, so let's just say that's in the next decade, hopefully. But what his team com- compromises now is it's a, it's a triumvirate of a mental health expert who has uh, 3,000 hours of, of clinical certification, a homeless advocate, someone who's actually been homeless and is now recovered and understands the plight of those folks, yeah. and then a paramedic. And they go out in a nondescript van specific to the calls around mental health only. And then obviously if they feel that they're at any point in danger, there's a button where they can, you know, ask for the police to join them and those kind of things. But that what is what Chief Police Cregan shared with me that mm-hmm. he was so proud of mm-hmm. because it he said the same thing you did. It's and a lot of leadership that I talk to says this. 
is that policing has been, unfortunately, the cheapest solution to every single problem in the cities. So if someone's throwing rocks at cars on the freeway, they call the police. If someone's having a psychotic break, they call the police. And the police are not trained for that, right? That's right. not something they have the wherewithal to, to handle. And so right. if we can actually, when you say like repurpose, are, is part of your legislative ideas to not to take money from the police, but to reallocate budgets at the state level, the city level, the county level for mental health services? Is that what that looks like? Yep, it looks like cahoots or, you know, any other variation we'll come up with. We'll say like mental health professionals are the right people to respond to those calls. So let's figure out, do they need to work in the police department at first, outside of the police? How do we start to make that transition so that we have mental health professionals responding to mental health crises and we have police to respond to situations of violence or that require police officers, right? Uh, that's the kind of work we need to be doing is what has happened. And it's not the cheapest solution. Police. No, police, it's expensive. It's a very yeah. expensive solution <clears throat> is that as we have shut down all of the kinds of social services and supports in our country, there's nobody else to call but police and prosecutors. Correct. Right. And so because we're all dutiful, then we show up when you call us and we're, you know, okay, you want me to respond to that? I don't know the heck I'm doing, but I mean, I guess I'll try to figure it out. Well, that's noble and appreciate the individual effort, but as a system, it's completely broken. I would say in law school, no part of law school teaches you how to deal with substance abuse or mental health issues. Right. I do not have the training as a lawyer to determine what level of treatment somebody needs for their addiction or for their mental illness. I don't know how to diagnose it. I don't know how to treat it. I'm a very expensive uh, government employee as a lawyer. I'm like the last person that should be in that conversation, but we do it every single day, hundreds of times a day, hundreds of thousands of times a day. If you look at the state, we're having lawyers solve what are problems that should be solved by professionals. (laughs) Other professionals. Other professionals, right? People that have gone to school for that. Uh, I don't know the DSM for diagnoses. I don't know how, oh, when you're, you know, when your eyes do that, that means I don't know any of that. And to try and learn it on the fly in the courtroom as you're going is, is I, you know, appreciate everybody's individual effort there, but that is not the appropriate system to respond. And so the work that we're doing is to try and clean those lines. Let's get the right agency responding in the right moment and clean up whatever the budgetary readjustment looks like in there. But let's be honest about what we need to happen in a moment like that. We know that more people die in encounters with police when they have mental health issues because Mm -hmm. the two people cannot figure out how to interact with each other. Uh, So we can solve that, right? We can do a better job there by having the right professionals show up to that situation and we can save those lives too. So that's the work we're doing is we're looking high level systems. How do we make this resonate more with what people want? What's interesting is if you survey people, they know it doesn't work. Voters know that what we have been doing doesn't work. Particularly people that live in high crime areas will tell you, you guys have tried this. You've tried it for 50 years. My community looks exactly the same, if not worse. So like, come on, yeah. <laughs> try something else. Um, and people are eager for that. They will support mental health interventions. They will support substance abuse interventions. Uh, it is good, but it's going to take the work of those systems to 
to really dig in and do it in a way that is logical and coherent and doesn't leave big gaps as we make that progression. Yeah, agreed. And that that's actually another uh, discussion too around crime concentration, specifically with, you know, South Side of Chicago and, and Watts in LA and the mm-hmm. Tenderloin here in San Francisco. What is your, what are you guys doing or what are your beliefs anyway on the crime concentration issue? Because that that is something that I see as an issue, it's the broken windows theory in the sense that if you have uh, more police present, you know, front and center, visible, that crime does actually diminish. And in the biggest areas, uh, I've noticed that even recently here in the Union Square area during the holidays, there's tons of police down there now, which I think is great. But, you know, that's, that's again, it's just a person on the outside not understanding what's going on. What are your beliefs on that as it relates to policing? Mm -hmm. being more visible. Yeah, I think there's two questions in there. Police being visible has been shown to have some deterrent effect that if there's a police officer walking down the street, that's not going to be the moment when you decide to do X, Y, Z, right? So there is value in that. Police presence does not solve problems like generational poverty, lack of an education, lack of housing. And so when we talk about an area of a town, any town we all live in, there's a side where there's people that don't have money and don't have resources. The solutions to those problems are not police. The solutions to those problems are investment in what makes for a safe community. We know safe communities because we live in them. We have have well-lit streets. We have good public schools. We have ample employment. We have access to healthy food. We have clean air. We have an absence. Right? That creates an absence of crime. It creates opportunity for flourishing lives. So those are the things that we need to invest in in communities that have not had that investment. We won't solve that by saying, like, if we put a police car on every corner, nothing bad will happen. That is untrue. We have tried that. We did that in the 80s and the 90s in lots of communities. It did not result in crime going down. Okay. <laughs> it resulted in detecting more crime. Uh, but it did not result in crime going down. So I think the thing about police presence is it can help in situations where you're like, let's just like, it just is going to be an extra little nudge to everybody stay on the right side of the conversation. But the bigger structural issues require structural solutions. We have to start having an honest conversation about the way schools look in really poor communities and why people don't read and graduate at the levels that they do other places. Yeah. Well, specific to the poverty issue, what are your thoughts on bail reform? Because one of the things that I read is that relying heavily on cash bail is that it makes the question of pretrial release one of means rather than one of risk. And I thought that was appropriate. The the counter argument on that is that if you let these folks out with, you know, if the bail reform, actually, why don't you start with this? What does Mm -hmm. bail reform look like here in San Francisco? And what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, there's a misconception that bail reform means nobody ever gets held. Yes. The current system means most people don't get held, um, particularly if they have money. So you can be accused of murder. Your bail will be set at a million dollars. You can bail out. Yep. You may murder again during that. I don't know. But like, that's a question for us. You seem relatively dangerous to us in that moment. We don't know why you killed somebody. If you killed somebody, we have a lot of questions in that moment. Um, But because you have money, we've decided, well, you must not be that dangerous. Well, that's absurd. What does wealth happen (laughs) with how dangerous you are? All of us, when you hear that, you think that's stupid. There's no correlation between your 
your economics and your dangerousness. But that is how our current system is set up. And so the conversation around bail reform is not saying let's release everybody. What it's saying is like, let's decide who gets released based on how dangerous we think they are. And let's use some science and data to figure that out instead of the size of their wallet. So what bail reform is saying is like, learn who tends to commit a new offense once they get released. Look at their prior record. Have they been violent repeatedly? Is it getting worse? Or are they somebody that's like made a mistake, stepped over a line, and we can give them a chance to be in the community and they'll come back to court and we'll resolve the issue. That's what bail reform is about. It is not about the doors of the jail no longer lock shut. It's about using a better better system to figure out who should stay in and that we only use that when we have to, right? We don't want to be using jails before we know somebody's guilty, before we know we have the right person, unless we really have to. And so that is the conversation around bail reform that unfortunately has gotten distorted into something that it isn't. Well, I think that, you know, in our polarized culture, that happens almost on everything yeah. today. So it's, you know, Brittany Grainer getting freed today. You know, you're, you're seeing people battle each other online about that. So whether <laughs> was that a good idea or not? Uh, but it's so that said, too, um, what are your goals legislatively with decarceration? So what does that look like for you? Or do you guys have goals? What are the percentages of people in state prison and county jails that are nonviolent offenders that really shouldn't be there as one question. And then what are, what are your goals specifically as an alliance to get more people out of prison that don't need to be there or don't need to be there as long maybe? Yeah. Um, So in state prisons, it is a relatively low number in California that are there on a nonviolent offense. Um, But how you what we say is violent varies person to person. There is a penal code definition for that, that we, some of us would say, oh, that covers everything. Others of us would say that's too broad or that's too narrow. Um, so the, the question we need to be having in California really is if, if we're interested in reducing prison populations is when is enough time? When has somebody, when has somebody has rehabilitated, how are we going to figure out how to release them home? How are we going to release them home in a way that and helps them succeed instead of challenges them to fail Um, and and looking at that. So some of the ways that we have weighed in um, is around ending the death penalty. We have not quite done that yet in the state of California. Um, That to us feels an important place to speak that killing people shouldn't be our response to killing people. It just is, it's, uh, right, it's hard to hold your moral ground when you conduct the very act uh, that you despise. The other big issue that we're weighing in on, and the California Supreme Court is going to hear this question, is whether we should continue to have three strikes in California. So we passed that as voters back in 1994, and then we amended it slightly a few years ago. But it has been single-handedly the thing that has exploded the prison population in California. And so the question before the Supreme Court is, the way the ballot measure was written is, prosecutors shall allege it every single time it exists. That means, uh, you know, well, before we amended some of it, but that meant when somebody steals a pizza from the delivery person, then that's their third that's one then or three. Pursue, yeah. If that's their third one, then we pursue 25 to life for that. Right. 
Uh, and we just did just to help out us us people that don't that is that was the issue around three strikes and you're out. Is after your third strike, it's twenty five years minimum. Yes. Oh, God. Okay. So yes, and that would be my question. And maybe you don't have this, you know, at um, at the immediate grasp. But is how many people are in prison based on that initiative? Twenty five years there. Do you have any idea? I mean, is it is it ten percent? Is it twenty percent of the state population? Because that seems like a a draconian law. You know, from even from my basic understanding of it. And what was the uh, amendment? Uh, that just took place? How did it attempt to change that? Yeah, I don't have the exact numbers, um, but I will tell you between second strikes and third strikes, it's about, it's the majority of the prison population right now. Wow. Um, So what that law said is like your first strike gets treated normally, your second strike, you get double the time, your third strike, you get 25 to life. The change that we made as voters in uh, the early 2000s said, the third strike had to be serious or violent. It couldn't be stealing oh, socks or good. stealing pizza. So we did start to curb that. Now, we still have many people in there for that conduct from prior to making that reform. And there's a big struggle to try and get those people in front of a judge and reheard and released. There are thousands of people still in prisons for those nonviolent third strikes from our earlier history. The question now is, should we trust prosecutors to not always allege that, right? Dia Gascon in LA has said, I don't want to allege that every single time it's possible because there are some people I don't believe need a 25 to life sentence um, to, to get better. And so the Supreme Court is going to hear that question. We don't know when, but it is before them. Uh, and we are working on that um, to try and urge them to leave that discretion in place and try to create space for more tailored sentences that are individual to the person and their conduct uh, instead of just broad sweeping political statements. Well, that's good news because that was a, a law that I think is, is a bit shocking, yeah. specifically the pizza, you know, or yeah. some, you know, there's some horrible, bike or, horrible examples. Yeah. yeah. And then now you're in prison for 25 years because that person will never be the same. Yeah. And even if they do get out, they will historically come back and commit more crimes. <laughs> so, well, those are all amazing things. And is there anything else you'd want to share with us that you guys are doing at the legislative or macro level at Prosecutors Alliance that you think will, are, is, is very important, specific to, you know, this restorative justice, at least at a broad canopy uh, that you'd want to share? We're, we're working on our proposals for the next legislative session that starts in January. Um, so nothing to share there, but okay. you know, just to say that we're really, um, we're thinking critically about the problems and trying to weigh in where we think a law enforcement voice can be helpful to legislators or to members of the public in understanding an issue and trying to be really honest and balanced about what we see. Um, where we see room for improvement, where we think there's a better way forward and try to put those on the table for the conversation. You know, most people don't spend their days working in this system. Right. They are in, they're in marketing, they're in logistics, they're in real estate. And, the, you know, to try and develop enough mastery of this subject area to be an informed voter or weigh in on the local politics can be a real challenge. And so, try to be a resource to people in that conversation who are dissatisfied and think we can do something better that hopefully is more humane, more racially just. Um, you know, we want to be a resource in that space. 
Well, I wish you so much luck, Christina Sotoberry. I appreciate your time because as I mentioned briefly when we hung out in the desert, it's it's people like you that we need to work on this because it is a massive problem. It is it permeates our culture, it permeates our budgets, our, our our collective mental health, and obviously all the things that we're experiencing uh, for most of the major cities right now. Uh, it it does need reform. So I wish you as much luck as humanly possible <laughs> in everything you're doing at the Prosecutors Alliance. And again, thank you for your time because I know you're super busy. Um, yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. It was really nice chatting with you. All right, cheers. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.